to Fidget, a BFRB podcast. Hey, Fidgeters, Jason here. It's still a podcast for your BFRB toolbox, but this episode is going to be a bit more experimental. It won't be an open conversation like Adele and I normally do. Instead, I've gathered some perspectives from mental health professionals that I'm going to weave in with my own journey. This episode is about the barriers in getting professional help with BFRBs. Like, man, it's hard asking for help. It's still hard while getting the help. But there are some things to keep in mind to make it easier. So, starting with myself, for eight years, I struggled with my BFRB without really knowing what to call it. The euphemism I settled on was my hands. I tried not to spend too much time thinking about it. I talked about it begrudgingly. Details to a minimum. My hands were strangers even to me. They were an embarrassing uncle that invited himself over and stayed too long on the couch. I kept my distance. The less I knew about it, the better. I didn't even Google it. I didn't want to know. Plausible deniability of any issue. For our first guest, I'd like to invite registered clinical counselor Catherine Atkinson to talk about this. I think if there's an issue, then there's work or treatment or change that has to be made. And change is hard for everyone. You know, I kind of think about it kind of like what you were saying um, reminded me of, you know, knowing that you have digestive problems, but not wanting to give up foods that cause that or recognize that maybe you have like an intolerance to dairy products because then you can't have Dairy Queen. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. it means that it's harder to do life. It's harder to go out to restaurants because you have to tell them you have this dairy allergy. Um, so if I just don't go see the doctor about my stomach problems and just continue to like feel a bit bloaty after I have Dairy Queen, then you know, don't have to deal with it. Or it also makes it less real, right? If you have a name to it, then it's real. I can just sort of put it to the side of my mind and keep going on with life and just use it to cope with with stress or use it to cope with this feeling in my body that needs restoration, um, but not change that or not face that and just continue with everyday life. Aha. Just living my best Peter Pan life with blizzards as my coping mechanism. I'm a little less embarrassed now, though, because it's not just me that doesn't want to talk about this. I don't think anyone really wants to talk about it. Licensed clinical social worker Pam Katz talks about this as something that stands out about BFRBs. I would say right now that one of the things that makes it stand out so much is the level of shame and embarrassment and self-judgment that individuals with BFRBs have. And the level of secrecy and how the self-compassion piece is so important for them to be able to talk about these things because many people with BFRBs, there's this rule, don't talk, don't share, don't tell. How do you explain to somebody why you have all of these marks on your face, right? Or on your hands or on your arms, how do you explain to that hairdresser that you go to to get your hair cut why you have bald patches? Or how do you explain to somebody why you don't want to have your picture taken? Or why you'll only see them between certain hours of the day because if you wake up in the morning and you haven't had a chance to put on your eyebrows yet, you're leaving yourself in this very vulnerable position. And so there is a lot of avoidance for individuals with BFRBs 
for social situations, for romantic encounters, going to the hairdresser. And so I think that in my experience, there is such a great level of shame associated with this condition. As sad as it is, hearing that was really helpful for me. It allowed me not to be so hard on myself for the years I spent avoiding the issue, because that's what other people are doing too. Even more than that, I'm starting to realize the gaps in awareness even for professionals. Here's psychologist Dr. Sean Reynolds sharing how he first learned about BFRBs. I had, uh, so I've been a psychologist for over 20 years and I've worked in a hospital setting where we would do multidisciplinary assessment. So this would be working with a physician, uh, there'd be a psychologist, a speech language pathologist, occupational therapist that would uh, work together for kids that had really complex challenges uh, across different areas. And so they, there would often be a learning disability, but combined with it, there'd be some kind of a fine motor problem or possibly hearing loss, uh, as well as anxiety or autism. It's, it was generally kids where there were multiple diagnoses that were going on. And so we would see kids in Alberta where there were just, where the, there were just a lot of challenges that were beyond what could be provided for by their by the provider they already had or in the community. And so we got to see a lot of great kids and great families. And I remember this child coming in that had, uh, that had trichotillomania who was uh, pulling on their hair. And one of the people that was around our table, and this was a good team of experienced folks. And one of the people said, well, maybe she's just cut it all off. And I remember thinking, as many degrees as we have, that's the best we can do is just cut it all off. Like, really? And so that led me to think there's got to be some kind of treatment for this. And so then I started doing some digging, found, um, uh, because I, I, I had come into this, I guess, with the knowledge of most psychologists would have that this is in our, our DSM, which is our big book that has all of the mental health uh, diagnoses available in it. So I knew of it, but didn't really know specifics on how to treat it. And I think most of my colleagues would kind of fall in that category where we knew of it, but didn't know what to do about it. And it's this, this frustration of people don't know much about it and don't have any idea of how to treatment. And I'm like, surely we can do better than this. So I then did some digging and got some extra training and no, there are actually strategies beyond, you know, lock the whole thing off, which work, uh, which can work uh, better. <laughs> surely we can do better. In my eight years of silent struggle, I spoke with six separate mental health professionals but none of them really met my BFRB head on or instilled any hope that I could learn to manage it. Yes, I do share some responsibility as I didn't really know how to ask for help, but you know, big picture, I'm starting to see why. It's a systemic issue. There's just a huge lack of awareness and representation. As you say that, I, I can think of like in watching uh, sitcoms or just general TV shows, you hear a fair bit about OCD and it's often characterized incorrectly, but at least it's spoken of. And I've never heard of anyone, I don't know of any shows where, where trichotillomania has been brought up. We're fixing that here though, right? You know, honestly, without a diagnosis, there were times where I more or less just gave up. I thought, maybe this is the rest of my life. That's why learning the BFRB term was so useful for me. All of a sudden, I wasn't alone. I had stats, resources, a community, hope. 
Pam shares about how the language of a diagnosis has helped her in her time working in schools. Taking, for example, skin picking, right? Lesions may occur. And when teachers see a student digging their fingernails into their arm and they're labeling it as self-harm or thinking that it is non-suicidal self-injury and being able to help them to understand that actually it's not. This is a coping skill in a different light. That was really useful to be able to differentiate that and to be able to explain it to others and to be able to talk with teachers about better ways to address it when it was happening, right? So with skin picking, for example, if it leads to bleeding, teachers, you know, get a little bit nervous about bodily fluids of any sort because in this world, we all get nervous about that. And so rather than it making a big deal, giving teachers and the student a language to be able to talk about like, hey, why don't you go on um, to the bathroom, wash it up, um, and I'll, you know, I'll leave a Band-Aid by the door as you come back in so they could cover it, right? Like helping teachers to not be alarmed by it, but also being able to help the student to realize like you're bleeding and I can't have you bleeding in my class, right? <laughs> because that's what happens in schools. Um, so I think that being able to also help teachers to not um, over alarm the class or the students like that was really helpful. I remember this time where I was drawing up a design on my boss's copy of a report and I just left a big streak of blood over the page. And that haunted me. With every single piece of paper, there's a chance I'll streak it with blood. Pam just talked about the importance of getting a diagnosis, but I asked Catherine if there's ever a downside of getting one. I suppose there's a potential for somebody to say, well, I've got this, so I might as well just accept it and it's an excuse to continue doing it because a lot of people don't want to give up this, right? It, it's meeting a need. So, you know, pulling out, out their hair is actually regulating their neurological system. It's actually, you know, regulating their stress levels. It's doing something for them. It can be pleasurable. And so to let that go and get treatment and do this hard therapy is not very motivating for some. Ayah, hard therapy. I recognize getting my diagnosis didn't solve my BFRB. It was the beginning. I still had a lot of work to do, but at least I could start. Let's hear a little more about that hard therapy work. By the time they get to me, they've been doing this for a long time. So if you're working on five years or 10 years of doing this, and now we're going to break, we're going to try to break that habit, it's unrealistic to think we can break that immediately in a couple of sessions. And that's not, it's not so much that you need sessions for the rest of your life or therapy forever, but knowing that breaking a habit takes, it just takes a long time when you've established something for that long. When you have a BFRB, you can't take off your skin and set that aside. You can't take off your hair and set that aside or your nails or grinding your teeth. I, I just, I think it's so hard because the, the, the things that are uh, the access that you have to this behavior is with you all the time. It's so if you have difficulty with smoking, for instance, then if you have cigarettes around every room of your house and you're around people that are smoking all the time, your risk for relapse just shoots way up. It's just so hard to not to not do that. 
And so, again, a strategy there is, well, if I don't keep any in the house, then I have to at least drive to the 7-Eleven, and then I have some time to think about it. And here, man, it's, it's, you're, <laughs> as long as you have your, your hair, <laughs> you'll have this, you'll have this struggle. Um, and the stuckness can sometimes be, I really enjoy this behavior and I look forward to it every day, right? I like it a lot and giving it up is hard. Motivation is a really important piece of this. So even if someone comes to me for, for therapy, if they're not highly motivated to make this change, it's not going to be successful, right? Because it is, it's rough. It's tough. Like it takes a lot of energy and time and commitment and money to come and see a therapist. Those are all barriers to, to doing the treatment. So you really do need to be ready for that. And so if a client comes to me and they're not in that place where they're able to engage in, you know, habit reversal training or something like that, well, then we spend other time working on other things or looking at the environment to see if we can make some just natural changes, working on stress levels, that basic kind of cognitive behavior therapy and support. And then they might be ready later to go a little bit more in depth with something like a habit reversal therapy. Oh boy, it sounds pretty overwhelming. So is there something I can think about to get that motivation? <laughs> um, well, obviously there's like the basics, like, you know, what brought you here and what, how is this interfering with what you want out of life, right? Just having that general discussion, right? How How is what's happening for you with this behavior negatively impacting your daily functioning? Is it, you know, um, or even how you look like a lot of people come in and they do have that, that feeling of shame or embarrassment about being out in public when it's quite visible. And you had mentioned that Jason, right? Like, just like, I've got people that kind of hide their hands or, um, you know, wear hats all the time or are super happy that it's mask season because they bite their lips, right? Like there are things that um, they do to be able to disguise those things. Um, and so sometimes the motivation comes from what if you didn't have to feel that way anymore? What would you do to get to that place? But no matter what age someone is, especially if they're little, but no matter what age, we always need to have some kind of a reward system. That's how people work. We don't go to work if we don't get a paycheck. So why are we going to do all of this resistance work and all of these to apply all of these tools and strategies if we're not kind of earning something? And sometimes that long-term goal of growing our hair back, that takes too long to be enough of a motivator. And so creating like reward systems that are independently utilized or created by a parent for a child is crucial. So for me, if I was going to do this work, I would have like a manicure and then a pedicure and then a facial and then, you know, a full day spa trip at the end of my treatment as kind of motivators for getting through the, the difficult times. Sean says something similar. And that's where rewards come in. And rewards here are not a, that's not a bad thing at all. All of us need rewards to do things that we, you know, that are ultimately good for us. I know that working is good for me when the alarm goes off at 6.15 in the morning. 
yeah, I don't really feel like doing it, you know, but then I, I, you know, there's, but there's some motivations that I get. I get that motivation of, I feel good when I help people. I get, uh, I get paid when I do my work and that's a positive thing. Uh, my wife doesn't yell at me if I, you know, if I get up and go to work, if I just lay there in bed and watch TV all day, I, I don't think she'll like that very much. Like there's lots of reasons why I get these rewards for doing a behavior that I really ought to be doing anyway. Okay, so yes, there are barriers, but yes, I I have the motivation to do this. So let's talk some strategies. What's one way I can start? I try to look at what are the benefits that people get from this? And that's kind of a weird question to ask, but it's around what do they get? Why do they enjoy it so much? And often there's a sensory component to it. And then if there is, then can we change that? Can we give them that sensory sensation, but in other kinds of ways? Can they do that with uh, lotion on the skin or with ice or with picking at a comb or popping bubbles? Uh, there are lots of different ways to try to get that, but it depends on what the sensation is that people are getting when they're doing the behaviors that they're trying to stop. And can we mimic that in another way that doesn't involve the body? We want to use a real combination of strategies. There's no magic bullet. There, as, to, uh, as far as I know, there's no specific medication that will address this. And so we ha I generally will work with people around coming up with a dozen or two dozen strategies, and then we find three to five of those that are real winners for them. And I just follow these and I'll be 100% cured, right? Everyone is going to weigh in on this one. It, what's what? There are a couple of things that are tricky with that because if you are some folks with difficulties with alcoholism, for instance, will have found that the only strategy that works for them is complete one hundred percent abstinence. That's the only thing that works. I haven't had a beer for ten years, but if I have one, then in an hour I'm going to be dancing on the table, and so I know I cannot have anything. And that's that's one approach that can be taken here. The difficulty with that is that some of our some of our hair pulling or skin picking is somewhat adaptive and it's related to grooming that is that's kind of instinctual. You know, when, when I see an eyebrow hair that's gone, you know, you get to an age and you're not there yet, but you'll believe me, you'll get to an age where these hairs will just, they'll just go out and they turn gray and then they triple in length overnight. You know, and I see one of these and then I want to get, I want to get rid of it. And so I do, but because it hurts, that doesn't make me want to get rid of all of them at once. That's enough to kind of, you know, stop the behavior for me. And so it, it being able to decide with the person, what are you looking for with this? Are you looking for complete 100% abstinence if I'm never, ever, ever going to do this again? Or is this something that you want to be able to manage and control? And I generally try to go more on that second, that manage and control idea with it, that because it's just more realistic. And also when people are looking at abstinence, then when they, for any of us, if I, if there's a behavior I don't want to do, if I'm trying to diet and then I eat an Oreo, I'm like, well, pfft. No point now. I might as well eat the whole package, you know. And so when we when we take an abstinence approach, it's kind of all or nothing. And generally, because humans are flawed, we tend to mess up. And so it's the, the a lot of the goal is to make the mistakes non catastrophic. So that if you have a mistake and you pull a few hairs, that this is is it ideal? No, but it's one thing to pull three hairs and entirely another to pull three hundred. And people will often have these sessions where they, they'll feel really out of control with it and they start going. And then it's almost like they lose that consciousness. It's almost a, a, a 
the the non-technical term would be zombie state, but where it's like, I'm just really going after it and really enjoying this and not able to stop. And so one of the keys with it as well, we want to make it a conscious behavior, but we also want to have off ramps so that if you've done, if you're in the midst of a polling session, how do you end that? How do you, uh, how do you limit the damage that's, that's occurring? Um, so it, 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 going back to your original question, I feel like I'm looking more at being able to manage this effectively as opposed to just uh, not being able to do it again. But I want for the person that I'm working with to have an understanding of, you know, what's success for you? What's that going to look like? And if they go total abstinence and I say, you know, this means that when you get the funny hair that goes crazy out of your eyebrow, are you going to be able to let that go? And, and then it's, it's then talking about, well, what's, what's reasonable? What, you know, what's reasonable to expect? From the initial session that I have with a client, I am preparing them and talking with them about there are going to be slips. There's going to be times that you are going to engage in this behavior. And so we talk about realistic goals, right? It's not uncommon that somebody will say, my goal for therapy is to stop this behavior. And so we do explore what if stopping the behavior, if there are times that the behavior ebbs and flows, that sometimes the urges are stronger and sometimes you feel like you are better able to manage the urges by using strategies. I mean, we all want to escape these hard things, right? Just, you know, you go to the doctor and you've got physical symptoms and you you want it, them to go away, right? You want to get better you want a cure. And it's the same thing with mental illness. The thing is, is I also want to make sure that I'm being realistic with people and that they understand that, you know, we can get it to a place where you are in more control and you feel symptom free. But we also have to understand that, like, let's say it was anxiety, that anxiety, sometimes people have anxious temperaments, or sometimes people have this genetic predisposition towards being anxious. And so My job is to help you identify the cues, identify the red flags before they become bigger and more intense and difficult to manage. And so that's your job going forward. It's not necessarily to avoid all of the symptoms altogether, but it's to be able to mitigate them as much as possible so that you can enjoy your life as much as possible. Pam offers a different way to think about quote unquote success. Did you record for awareness? Did you record your your um, episodes and for our problem solving purposes and for your own? Did you before a high risk time? Did you identify that's a high risk time? And here's how I am going to be kind to my future self, and I am going to put these strategies into place. And here are the strategies I'm going to use during that time. Um, success is also being able to notice that, hey, I had an urge and I used a strategy. How cool is that? Success is not how long your hair grew or how cleared up your skin is because you can have six weeks of no episodes and then you can have one really intense episode and it looks like you did a lot of damage. And so because you had a slip doesn't mean that you have completely derailed. It's being able to notice what happened in this moment. What do I do now to get back on my track to continue to notice I have this value or this, you know, this, I, 
this North Star, this guide in my mind of I want to have healthy habits and is, um, or I have this North Star of I want to manage my emotions or my stressors in a more adaptive manner and being able to pivot back towards that and being able to say, what do I need to do in this moment to do that? Ask me a year ago, what am I working towards? I would have said never ever scratching my skin ever again. That's not my goal anymore. I'm going to scratch again. I know it's going to happen and that's okay. That doesn't scare me anymore. That doesn't mean I've lost hope. We've covered this a few times in other fidget episodes, but I think it's so important. For me, success is removing the shame, not the behavior. Here's Catherine one more time on a realistic view over a longer period of time. Just because we get through this time and we reduce these urges and we, we reduce these behaviors doesn't mean that it's gone. Because we know that BFRBs have a genetic basis and we know that increased stress you know, leads to increased um, urges and increased picking and pulling and things like that. And so um, I kind of prepared them a little bit. Like just, be, you know, we can make huge progress and you can get a lot of your power back over this condition and over this behavior. But... Let's say you end up moving across the country or you get divorced or you lose your job. We know your stress level goes up. We know the urges are going to go up. And so this therapy doesn't end at the end of our time together. You need to pick these pieces up, these skills up at the, you know, at different times in your life and apply them again in order for you to um, reduce those urges one more time. Like it's kind of like up and down, you know, you'll have these times where things are better and then you'll notice more urges you need to get back those gloves on or do whatever it is that we did together. And then you go back up and things are okay. And, you know, you kind of do that cycle throughout life. Have you seen the prestige Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, two rival magicians trying to figure out the secret to each other's tricks? The movie claims people don't actually want to know the secret. They want to be fooled. People want magic. Because the secret isn't really all that impressive. The secret is actually hard work and sacrifice. An answer so boring, we don't actually believe it. We'll sooner believe in aliens and breaking the laws of physics than hard work and sacrifice. And unfortunately, I think it's the same with a BFRB. That practice, right? Like if you are a musician, you're going to practice the daylights out of that song before you get up on stage. It's not, you're not going to wing it, right? Because it's muscle memory. Or if you're an athlete, you aren't just getting up, you know, and going, for example, if you play hockey, you're not just getting on the ice, right? You are going to be on the ground, like practicing, moving that puck with your stick. You are going to be doing, you know, exercises off the ice, on the ice, going to practice, trying different moves. It's the same thing with a behavioral change. Just like our bodies were in the practice of handling our stress or our boredom or our overwhelmed feelings or anxiety or whatever the feelings are they're contributing in one way. That's what our bodies have done for so long. We need to begin to train our bodies, build that muscle memory too, in order to do something different and practice. It makes permanent, not perfect. 
Well, folks, there you go. I hope this episode has helped you in some way, and I'd love to hear your experiences with mental health professionals, good or bad. You can email us at fidgetpodcast at gmail.com or our Instagram is at fidgetpodcast. If you want to support the show, we have a Patreon page or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As always, I want to thank Cheyenne for our logo and Thomas for our music. Double thanks to Thomas for help editing this episode along with Lucas and Adele. All the best with your masters, Adele. Learn lots. A huge thank you to Pam Katz, Catherine Atkinson, and Sean Reynolds. I truly learned so much talking to you. To leave you on one final clip, I asked Pam if there's something she'd like to say to those out there with BFRBs. What I say to every new client in my office, which is, I get it. I understand that this is something that you have done for a long time to manage your stress, overwhelmed feelings, your boredom, whatever the feelings that are associated with it every day to get through your life. And I get why you do what you do. And did you know that there are ways that we can treat this to help to minimize the frequency, intensity, and duration of these behaviors?